everybody. Welcome to a very special literary disco. That's right. It's special for a lot of reasons. One, Ryder isn't with us. He's on vacation. He's on vacation. He's in the south of France. Where 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 is Ryder? I don't know. Where did he go? I don't know where he went. I'm sure if we looked on Twitter, someone's tweeting, just saw Ryder Strong in the underground. So we'll go back to Twitter and see where Ryder is. But we know that he went on uh, his honeymoon, and uh, he was telling us about it, and then we forgot about it. Yeah. We care so a no, lot about him. Yeah. No offense, Ryder. I, I think it was France. It was somewhere where I was concerned about his reception vis-a-vis being an American. It but, seems like a place that he would go and read Hemingway. Right. Right. Yeah. Smoke clothes and buy a yeah. leather jacket he doesn't need. Exactly. But it's also a special episode because it's actually not really about a book this time. We're going to talk to Julia about something that, of all the people I know, she's the only one who's ever done this, which is she went on a whale ship adventure. We've been, uh, I know we've been talking about this for like (laughs) nine months, but she finally went and did it. Um, And she was on the Morgan. That's what it was called, right, Julia? The Charles W. Morgan, yes. The Charles W. Morgan. And that that was a boat that was, or a ship. A a boat's like something you row. A ship is like. Yeah. I mean, it's a boat, but then you're just being deliberately understated about it. You know, like, (laughs) oh, I was just on my boat. (laughs) This is a ship. Let's treat it with some respect. Right. So this is, it, it's a obviously decommissioned whale ship um, that sailed out of Boston Harbor. Is that correct? Well, it sailed. Uh, so it lives in Mystic Seaport, which is, if you're not from the East Coast, it's a beautiful outdoor museum um, all about uh, boating history and basically the history of the ocean. Um, and it's the Charles W. Morgan has been at the seaport for many, many years, being restored to various levels, and finally they decided to actually sail it. And it sailed, um, starting at starting in Mystic, up all around, uh, up through Rhode Island, and around the coast of Cape Cod, and then into Stellwagen Bank, which is a, a beautiful marine life preserve where there are whales, and, and into Boston and Harbor and back again. And there were a bunch of different legs where with different people on the boat at each time, right? You got it. Yep. So there was, well, the basic structure of it, um, am I preempting your questions? I'm sure I am. No. Um, no. So the basic structure of the journey was they ha- hired a captain and a whole crew, and they were on the ship the whole time. Um, but at, on the different legs, um, and they had to sail in short legs because uh, this is really, it's a museum object. It's a piece of history. So they didn't want to just, you know, take it out into the open sea. Um, right. It's so, like putting the Smithsonian on water, basically. Yeah, exactly. Imagine sailing on Mona Lisa's face. That's what I was doing. <laughs> sailing on Mona Lisa's face in other essays. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, uh, so every time that they would go into port, they would switch out some of the passengers on the ship. And some of those people who would get switched out were museum staff, um, because they were, of course, all really excited about the ship. Um, And some of those people were uh, important people, exciting people. And I can talk about um, the cool person who was on my trip. And that's foreshadowing. And then, um, <laughs> and then a lot of those people were what was called 38th Voyagers, which was what I was, or I guess am. I guess it's permanent. I should get it tattooed. 
Um, so the 38th Voyagers was basically... A lot of people are getting that on the small of their back now. Voyager, right above their yeah. ass crack. It's, it's super classy. It's Gross. Super classy. <laughs> so X the, marks the spot. <laughs> so the 38th Voyagers are a group of people who were artists or intellectuals or scholars um, of some kind who all had some interest in whaling history or the ship itself. I mean, for example, one guy on my trip who I found fascinating was a guy who was an expert in historic wood and had been a part of the project of finding wood to appropriately restore the ship. So people like that, and then a lot of Melville scholars, and then people like me. And all the 38th Voyagers have to produce something, you know, some piece of art or a paper or whatever to talk about and think about their experience. And guess what, listeners? This is my project. So... So yeah, Thanks so for being after my Julia, after Julia and I are done talking, you're going to get uh, to actually hear part of the voyage. You've got recordings from from being on the ship. Um, you're going to recount the the full journey, including the mutiny, which I thought was fascinating. Oh yeah, I wasn't expecting you to kill a guy, but I mean, when when it gets down to it, you ain't to be fucked with. You know, no. I think I think that's your shipping sort of motto. I'm Julia Patel. I'm a 38th, whatever the fuck you said, and I ain't to be fucked with. Wait a minute. Stop. You said Julia Patel. What? I don't know. Um, What's oh. happening? Is that, you're, that's you're my, my shipping. You're my, you're my friend of Gom's uh, <laughs> new sister. <laughs> Julia Pastel, who ain't to be fucked with. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so that was it. Prior, prior to going on this... So, like, obviously, I live on the West Coast. I live in the desert. The closest I've come to being on some big whale ship is being on my buddy Chad's boat um, that was docked in the Ventura Harbor. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> did you ever out. go out? No, you never no. went out. And I, I said Chad. I meant Sean. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> in case Sean's listening, which I don't think he is. Um, but, like, you know, we're not a big – at least I wasn't um, – big in the boating culture. And, you know, Jews in general aren't very buoyant. What what was sort of your history on the sea? Like, have you done a lot of sailing in the past? Actually, no. I've never been sailing until this experience. I've been out on the water many times in various, um, you know, motorboats, party boats, uh, <laughs> rowboats, ferries. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to sail. And I was actually one of the only people who had never been sailing. I mean, one thing that I learned from doing this was that there are so many sailing nerds and they are intense. And then there's a subset of them who are really into tall ships and sailing tall mm-hmm. ships, which are, you know, these massive ships with these sails that have to be hand hand maneuvered. I'm not using any of the right words. Sailing has a lot of, uh, it has a whole language that I intended to teach myself, but I think it's really impossible to teach yourself without experience and immersion. So yeah, I, I've always loved the water and I've always loved the idea of being a sailor, but alas, I am not. I am not. When, when did you, when, when did the excitement of saying, oh my God, I get to do this start to be married to the fear of, oh, my God, <laughs> I've never done this before. What's going to happen? <laughs> uh, those are the same excitement, Todd. I mean, I don't know if you hate doing new things, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, they no, I like doing joy. new things, but not all of them could end with me, you know, in the drink. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, there was, so there was a training day that um, really, I was really excited when I got into the program, and then there was a training, and on this day, we all went down to the seaport, and we kind of looked around the ship, and I mean, there was lots of telling us logistics and stuff, but all I could think about was, you know, the physicality of being on the ship, so... We finally go out to the ship, and it was pouring rain, and I was mm. ill-dressed, and all the sailors were perfectly appropriately dressed. And that was that's always a sign when you're dressed completely right. wrong. And then we had to practice, like, basically climbing all over the boat and climbing up into the rigging in the sails, like, in the pouring rain. Um, and it's scary, you know? It's high. You're not tied to anything. You're just climbing on ropes into the air, and some of the ropes are really old and they're saying, like, don't put two feet on one rope because it could snap and you could plummet onto the deck and break right. your neck. So, yeah, bad. all of those things definitely have some fear attached to them. Um, but mostly I was just excited. I mean, it, there's no way anyone's going to let anyone's gonna let Mona Lisa sink, you know, right. into the ocean. How, how so, far off of land were you? That's a good question. Um, I don't know the exact number, but... Not really far. I mean, the, and and also the the ship was attended by lots of boats around it, just in case. I mean, they uh, okay. they really didn't want it to be a high risk taking experience. They wanted it right. more to be a joy for all, with very low levels of fear. <laughs> yeah, they. I can't imagine that it would be great PR if it you got swept out to sea and you know. Suddenly, Julia Pistel of CT CT Improv is in charge of the boat. That would, that would, not, be, that would not be a good thing. I, no one would ever put me in charge of it. Although boat. I could, I could sell that right now as a sitcom. Jennifer Jason Lee is Julia Pistel, Captain <laughs> Captain Julia Pistel, Sea Dogs. It'd be called. <laughs> so, um, when when you were on the boat. At, at what point did you start to feel like you were comfortable or was there at any point where you didn't feel like, okay, I, I, this is impossible for me to do. Um, were you always aware of yourself as a 21st century person or could you say, Oh wow, I, I can imagine myself. I, feel, I was definitely always aware of myself as a 21st century person. I mean, the experience was so, uh, there were so many people aboard and there was always an awareness that, you know, this, everyone was really excited about the ship just being afloat. Um, and the sense of the purpose of the <laughs> ship was of course, wildly different than when the purpose might've been to go harpoon as many whales as possible. So, right. um, it's hard to completely immerse yourself when you know that just the experience of being on it is very, you know, it's artificial in some way. I, I don't want to say artificial, but it's, it wasn't a reenactment. Let's put it this way. Right. It was the experience. It wasn't like of, a civil war reenactment. No, not at all. Although I also would have signed up for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for the North, just to be clear, for the North. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so it was more of an experience of what does this shit mean today, and you know how does it relate to our current culture and society. But to answer your question. I would like to think that I would have been the kind of person who would want to sail, uh, perhaps when I was maybe a little younger and more stupid and willing to go and get on a ship for, I mean, most of these voyages were a year to two and a half years long. Wow. So, you know, you That's get crazy. on, you know, you marry your wife, 
you get her pregnant, you get on the ship, you come back, you have a toddler. You know, that was the experience of many, many sailors. What was it like, though, knowing that you had to create a narrative out of it? So, you know, presumably not everyone's going on there thinking, well, I need to recount this. Were you doing things with the intention of, okay, this is something I'm going to do because I know I can use it? And did that affect your time on the ship? Yes, definitely. I mean, so when you know you have to make a story, then you have to step out of that observer persona and actually experience things. I mean, I suppose I could have made a story that was all observation or produced a product that was all observation, and certain people did, you know, drawing. There was an incredible person aboard with me, one of the other voyagers, um, was taking drawings in real time, which when I heard about I was like, oh, that sounded okay. And then watching her over the course of two days, create probably 400 beautiful charcoal oh drawings God. as fast as you could. Was, it was insane. It was That's so crazy. Cool. But I think when we know we have to make a story of our own experience, then we force ourselves to live the story. So any opportunity there was to be hands-on or to do something myself, you know, I was just even more ready to go because I knew I had to write something about it later, which is one of the reasons, honestly, that I write it all and definitely one of the reasons I write nonfictions because it drives you to write, um, to live a life worth writing about. But isn't it different, though, than, I mean, obviously, this is something we've talked a lot about on the show, you know, like someone like Cheryl Strayed, where she's recounting something that happened to her, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, Mm -hmm. you are writing it in your head as it's happening. You know, you you're attaching narrative, even if you don't you know, even if you don't want to. I, I remember seeing a post from you on Facebook that yeah. you were terribly nauseous uh, at one point. And I thought, oh, boy, is she just going to have a part where in the essay where it says, and then I laid down and wanted to kill myself? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny because one of the things that um, was a huge debate was whether or not to take um, seasickness medication because, of course, that didn't right. exist in the time that people were experiencing this. And, um, I wasn't going to, and then it turned out we were sailing in like really rough waters. I was on a really difficult leg. Um, so then I, I decided to take it, but it made me like kind of sleepy and out of it. So that was disappointing, but also again, it wasn't a reenactment. So I was like, okay, this is just part of my narrative is that I'm totally out of it. So the the people that were on the, the ship with you, um, there was one person in particular that I think obviously the listeners are going to be fascinated by if they are older than 10 years old and have heard of this person. Tell us about Jacques Cousteau's relative that was on the ship with you. Um, so it was Jacques Cousteau's son, and he was there um, on behalf of Ocean Conservancy and the Jacques Cousteau Society. And he talked about preserving the ocean and why that's so important. Of course, he's really preaching in the choir, a bunch of, you know, suntan sailors and like right. dorky artists. Uh, but, uh, he, everybody got a red hat and I just, you know, it was really, it was really great. You know, it was great to feel that connection with history and with such an exciting figure, you know, really an activist. And it, it definitely brought me back to my save the whales moment of my youth, which is really how this all started. So I was excited to have someone like that on, but some of the other, like, had other really cool people. How old was he? He's probably in his 60s or 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. So he's old enough to be Jacques Cousteau. I guess Jacques Cousteau was old when we were little kids. So Yeah. It turns out time is a constant. Something I learned on my great Welsh adventure called life. Yeah. 
<laughs> what what other uh, kinds of folks were on the, the ship? Obviously, you talked about the person who was doing the charcoal drawings. There's Jacques Cousteau's son. Was there someone, um, and then the, the guy who found the wood, is there someone else that, that really stood out to you in your memory? There were a lot of Melville scholars. I mean, probably like every Melville scholar that exists applied to be mm. on this program. There were two on my leg, and there were probably two or three on every other leg. And it was great because they're all writing biographies and comparing their biographical notes. I mean, I think so many people want Moby Dick to stay in the public imagination, because, and including myself, because it's got so many themes that are so American. You know, the whales are a source of energy. Uh, the whale hunt is, you know, the same as the Gatsby Green Lake concept. And so many Melville scholars just have this sense of desperation about them that they, they really, really want people to love Melville as much as they do. And they were just, like, overjoyed and relieved to be able to get to experience anything like uh, anything like Melville experience. So, like, if you think about it, for example, you can go hike, you know, the trails that Thoreau hiked. You right. know, I've done that. But you cannot recreate, unless you are on this experience, anything like what Melville experienced. So it was really, really neat for them. They were like kids in a candy store. Well, but, I mean, it's not even, obviously, it's not close to what Melville experienced. You know, I mean, it's like it's like saying going out and fishing in a pond is like, you know, fishing for jaws. You know, I mean, they were close to the shore. They didn't, it wasn't, you know, they weren't in yeah. open seas. So, I mean, it's, it's a taste of what he went through, having not read the book, obviously. <laughs> I don't know yeah. for sure. <laughs> so, of course. I mean, that's, that's obviously true. But I, what's really struck me the most about the whole experience was um, the sensory experiences that no one knew right. what they would be like, specifically sound. So the mm -hmm. sound of the boat moving through the water, the sound oh, of the sails cool. coming yeah. down. You know, there's we don't have those sounds. We don't have them recorded. Um, I mean, we have other ships that have been built similarly, but the the museum staff and the crew was so excited to learn how the boat felt in their hands and sounded mm, and yeah. all that good stuff. So that in it, even though those are tiny details, they're very, very, very exciting to people who have been imagining these through literature this whole time. Yeah, I, w I mean, I, I guess I hadn't thought of it that way. That I mean, really, you are sitting on history and hearing what they heard. That is pretty cool. Um, yeah. Well, two more questions, and then we'll let you actually tell your story. Um, and I think these are the two questions that are on listeners' minds right now. Number one, did you actually see any whales? And number two, did anyone hook up? <laughs> um, I don't know about the hooking up. Come on. What happened at I, night? Didn't people get crazy with the mead I, and the, the hard I, pack? I got crazy in my, in my bunk, lying in my bunk, uh, and reading Moby Dick. I hooked up with my brain to a great <laughs> I'm, book. I'm not asking you, Julia, and I don't think the listeners want to know if you hooked up. You're a married woman. But we're like the Melville scholars, like, hey, girl. Meet me on the aft bow and, you know. I got to tell you, those bunks are so, so, so small. If you are ever in Connecticut, go to Mystic Seaport, go to the Charles W. Morgan, go okay. on it, go down, look at the bunk and be like, wow, these are for tiny people. There was no hooking up, I promise you. And to answer your second question, I did not see any whales, which is fine. Um, but on another leg, and this is a great image to leave people with, um, they did sail out into a small pod of whales and 
one of the crew members called the stowaway, who was there to like record and do social media and stuff, climbed up to the highest, highest, highest place you can climb on the ship and was able to see the whales all around the ship. So oh there is video of that, and we can link to that. There's video and pictures of that. Oh, great. And is it, it was is just it on, wonderful. Is it on YouTube, or is it hosted somewhere else that we would see it's it? On, it's on the Seaport's Facebook page. I'll find it and put it up okay. on ours. Yeah, that would be cool. Well, let's uh, let's get to it, Julia. So coming up is Julia, uh, and she's going to read an essay, a living essay, about her time on the Charles W. Morgan. And then next week, or I'm sorry, two weeks, we'll be back with Tinkers, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by someone, Paul Harding. Is that his name? I don't remember his name, but he won the Pulitzer Prize and he wrote Tinkers. This is usually the part that Ryder does, so I don't really know what I'm saying. Um, we miss you, Ryder. We miss you, Ryder. <laughs> so stick around for Julia. She's up next. This is Julia here from Literary Disco, and I am here to read you an original essay that I wrote and recorded for the Mystic Seaports archives. Uh, they asked every single 38th Voyager to create a piece of art exploring their experience aboard the ship. And throughout the piece, you'll hear sounds recorded aboard the ship and passages from Moby Dick. So this is my essay. Uh, it's entitled Original Material, an Account of a Voyage on the Charles W. Morgan by Julia Pistel. Okay, here we go, guys. For most of my childhood, I wore my hair in one long braid. Straight and thick, it sat on my back like an anchor, something other than the girls who left their hair down and messy and play-muddled, something other than the girls whose pep was enforced by ponytails, something other than the gymnasts whose buns seemingly kept their whole bodies rigid, something even other than French braids and fishtails created by moms with acrobatic fingers and time on their hands. My braid was simple, long, heavy. It gave off the correct signal that I was terribly shy and the correct signal that I read piles and piles of books. And after a certain time, I started to think about cutting it off. Jo March had sold her hair for her family and Mary Martin had cut off her hair to be Peter Pan. But truly, the person I wanted to be most like was not a household name. I wanted to be the heroine in The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle, a children's book by Avi about a girl who sails on a merchant ship and gets involved in a mutiny. At the height of the novel, she climbs into the rigging with her hands gripping the ropes, and her hands were soft like bloody cream, says one of the sailors in a line I never forgot. And not too long after that climb and a knife-handling lesson, she finds herself hacking her hair off when it gets in the way of her task of cutting down the four-yard sail in a hurricane. That is what I wanted to do when I was nine years old and sitting in an armchair in my TV room in New Jersey. I didn't want to be one of those characters on TV who cut off her hair while locked in a bathroom staring in a mirror. I wanted to find a hurricane, join a mutiny, climb into the sky, wrestle a sail, and become a woman by sawing off the symbol of my constraining femininity and throwing it into the wind. It took me 22 years to find a ship worthy of the act. The ship was the Charles W. Morgan, and it had been restored by the Mystic Seaport over the course of five years in preparation for the journey. Well, truly, it was 173 years. The ship was built in 1841 and used as a whale ship until 1921. After that, she sat in the docks in Mystic, Connecticut, until restoration in the 70s. 
Eventually, the museum culture of America began to rotate away from the idea that museums were a place to educate yourself by reading lots of plaques and move more towards the idea that museums were places to directly experience history. And the Mystic Seaport began a restoration in 2008 that culminated in the ship's 38th voyage from Connecticut up the coast of Rhode Island, up around Cape Cod, into Boston Harbor, and back again. I heard about the 38th voyage because I'm still, in some small, small way, the girl with the braid. Sitting where I never wanted to be sitting, on the deck of no ship. In fact, I was in a cubicle, not even one with a window. I got an email from a coworker who knew I loved Moby Dick. At least I'd advanced enough not to read it in an armchair, but on a beach in China many years ago. And once in a while, I bothered my coworkers here in Connecticut by reading the first paragraph aloud at my desk, when the only waves I could hear were the lapping of paper coming out of the copier. So here is a passage from the first page of Moby Dick. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever, it's a di- whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off. Then I accounted high time to get to sea as soon as I can. It was high time. My preferred method of knocking people's hats off was getting overly entangled in email discussions. It had been a long time since I got lost somewhere where I had no idea what I was doing. And the Morgan is the perfect ship for a Melville lover. It's the closest ship to the Pequot on the water. It was built in the same shipyard as the ship Melville himself sailed on. So I applied and got into the program, or should I say, got on board the ship, and a few months later, I was rowing a replica wooden whaleboat in the rain on the Mystic River. Here's another passage from Moby Dick. Stand by the braces, hard down the helm. Brace her, shiver her, shiver her. So, well that, boats, boats. Soon all the boats but Starbucks were dropped, all the boats' sails set, all the paddles playing with rippling swiftness, shooting to leeward. Like noiseless nautilus shells, their light prows sped through the sea, but only slowly they neared the foe. As they neared him, the ocean grew still more smooth, seemed drawing a carpet over its waves, seemed a noon meadow sown serenely at spread, with oars apeak and paddles down, the sheets of their sails adrift, the three boats now stilly floated, awaiting Moby Dick's appearance. This was my training as a 38th voyager, climbing into the wet boat and grasping a paddle, pulling a pace with scientists and scholars. There were about 50 of us there that day, pretending to be sailors. We wore raincoats and boots and pretended to know something about this historic practice. Some people knew more than others. The sailors, for instance, who were there as tall ship enthusiasts, or the Melville scholars who had pored over every description of every whaleboat in every Melville work. As 38th Voyagers went, I was certainly the littlest deckhand who had begged his way on board, or worse, the female passenger with long hair and hands like bloody cream and no idea what she was getting into. As we learned to row a whaleboat, my oar caught a crab, getting out of sink in the water and lurching me off my seat in the boat. Books had brought me here, but books could not help me now. That day I walked the seaport shelled ground and climbed a bit onto the ship, still a museum exhibit tied up at the docks. We were told about the restoration of the ship in the wood. 
Over time, so much of the wood had been replaced that only about 15% of the original material remains on the ship. But that's the life of the ship. You have the basic structure, the hull, the deck, the mast, the sails, the crew, and they get so beaten up by wind and water and time that parts and pieces and people have to be replaced throughout its life. That doesn't make the ship any less alive. It occupies the same space it always did, just made of new stuff. When the time came to sail on my leg of the journey, from Provincetown to Boston, and not just row a whaleboat, I made my way onto the ferry out to Provincetown. I would be sailing from P-Town down around the outskirts of Stellwagen Bank, right into Boston Harbor. It was supposed to storm upon our departure, and so we were leaving early. I was to meet my sailors at a deli in P-Town, at which I pre-ordered a $7 sandwich. Just like Melville, I'm sure. From Moby Dick. In thoroughfares nigh the docks, any considerable seaport will frequently offer to view the queerest-looking nondescripts from foreign parts. It was bare week in P-Town, and the nondescripts were very descript. I ate a plate of oysters and considered getting an anchor tattoo, then downgraded to the desire to get an airbrushed anchor tattoo, then lost interest and got ice cream. So far, so Ishmael. I walked the crowded streets in the rain as women talked on cell phones and packs of vacationers skittered toward covered roofs. Already soaking wet with few changes of clothes, I knew I was a poor sailor already. As I walked up to the deli, a man lurched at me in the parking lot. He was drunk and bedraggled, and I wondered if this was my Queequeg. No, just my town drunk. Storm's coming tonight, he said, just like in every movie I've ever seen. I know, I said, gossiping about weather with a man who wandered in parking lots saying storm's coming. Did he say that every night, and tonight was his lucky day, since the storm actually was coming? My fellow sailors were a high school teacher, two Melville scholars, an expert in historic wood, a descendant of the first peoples who had recently gone on a legal whale hunt, a charcoal artist, a mystic seaport archivist, an expert in nautical instruments, and me. Well, there was all of us, and then, of course, there were the real sailors who were on the ship and not at a deli. At sunset, we boarded. We walked up the gangway and met our crew, young and hearty-looking and completely without interest in the temporary artistic sailors. From the moment we were on board, we were in the way. The deck of the ship was mathematically perfect, like an Othello board. Every time someone made a move, someone else had to counter. Step off that rope. Step off that doorway. Step off that step. Every inch of the ship was designed not for human idling, but for the ship itself. It was smaller than I expected, more precise. Not a big movie set, but a place where you shouldn't be unless you know how it worked. Being on the deck of the ship was being inside a machine. If you put your hand somewhere, it would help you to know how to make that hand useful, or else it might as well get caught in the machinery and cut off. That night, I wandered on the deck in my bare feet, feeling the rain on the wood. What did it mean to be only 15% original, I wondered. The original material was mostly in the keel and the hull, the bottom of the ship. The wood under my feet was in the Morgan's original planks, and my feet weren't the feet of any original sailor either. The wood wasn't a direct descendant of those planks, and neither was I a direct descendant of anyone who had sailed these waters. I was just a girl who's read a lot of books, and not even that young girl anymore. But was walking the deck in some small way a descendant of the experience itself? What I wanted, of course, was what I've always wanted, like so many people who take to the water. 
What I wanted was 100% experience. I wanted to be transported to never-never lands of authenticity. I didn't want to watch the other Voyager's PowerPoint slideshow of hunting a whale. I wanted to smell the blubber. I hated myself for clicking on my flashlight in my bunk below decks, but I would have hated myself more for lighting a candle in this beautiful museum object. When I awoke to the ship at sail, I kept my eyes closed and imagined that this water was the same water that rocked the whale hunters awake. But of course it wasn't. It had cycled through the atmosphere and come to this shore, reincarnated as new ocean. Of course, I would not truly want the sailing life with its violent slaughter of whales or loneliness or sickness or all the dangers that come with being a sailor. I didn't want to wash up on shore on a coffin like Ishmael or go drown chasing some huge white beast. And yet I still cried out for experience, like every person wanted, I suspected, and it didn't matter where experience took me. From Moby Dick, it was not down on any map. True places never are. I spent our sail watching the sails, mostly, rolling down, filling up with wind, creaking forward. The deckhands, who had been at this for a couple of months longer than I had, pulled themselves up the rigging and dangled out on the jib. They maneuvered every inch of the ship with their expert hands. They sang us songs on deck. And they communicated in the language of the ship, which I had tried and failed to learn. I was still the greenest of cabin boys. I hoisted rope and became a part of the machine as best I could. I ate hardtack and salt pork, which incidentally looks and tastes like dog food. I wandered above and below decks. I watched the other ships going by and the land recede on one side and appear on the other. I wondered what Boston would look like coming in, and it was beautiful when the time came. By the afternoon, it was certain that we'd sailed ahead of the storm. Our captain pulled us to calm waters and allowed us, the 38th Voyagers, to climb the rigging. I was first in line and probably first in fear. Everybody, um, I'm. I think I'm gonna go. Yeah. So here's all. Should I grab that one? Yeah.
On deck, any Voyagers who are going to go aloft and need a meet over here. Hi everyone, I'm Dana, I'm on our deckhands. So to go aloft, um, the way we get to, you guys get to go is because you are the Voyagers and you get to go aloft. Our, your mission today is you get to go to the Fuddocks and that is the place you'll see a crew member inside both these areas. You can go up to there, they'll help you clip in up there. You can look around and then we'll come back down and let somebody else go. But there's some things we need to know before we go up. Obviously the first thing, the best way not to fall is not to let go, right? Yeah. Okay, so there's some common sense involved in this. So when you climb, we're going to maintain three points of contact. How many? Three. Two hands and a foot, two feet and a hand, something to that effect. A rear end and two hands, right? Whatever. Three <laughs> points of contact. When you go up, you put your hands on the vertical. They're tarred, they're black, and that's standing rigging on the yep. ship. Anything that is black is I told myself that this was the only time I'd get to do this in my whole life and that there would be no more opportunities to climb into the rigging on the open sea on the only remaining historic whale ship in the world. These ropes were not historic ropes. They could hold me. I hauled myself up the ledge of the ship, pulling up with my arms. I put one foot on the little whaleboat tied to the side of the Morgan and turned to the rigging. I climbed the ladder as slowly as I could, leaning forward into it. My hands and clothes were covered in tar. I was not, and wouldn't be for a while, clipped in with the harness I was wearing. I could have leaned back and fallen into the Atlantic. One hand, one foot at a time, I climbed up toward the main mast and the untied sails. I reached the top and clipped myself to the rigging as directed. I stared into the sail, its beautiful taut skin like a lung breathing in air. Sail after sail after sail was before me on the ship. And finally, I turned around. I could have hacked off my braid at that moment, but I was only 15% of the girl I was when I had that fantasy. I had less of the courage. I was high up in the sky, leaning against the wind. Here was the experience of experience, 
I was not free to leap wildly into the water, but being on a ship is not actually about freedom. It's about a cramped space on a vast, terrifying plane of water, like being in a tiny pod in outer space. A good ship doesn't make you feel big and powerful. It makes you feel very small. The tiniest gear on a clock, the smallest rope on the edge of a sail. I needed no gesture. I needed no book. And at this moment, I needed no words. Besides, I had not brought a knife. I stood for a long time on those ropes, facing the sky. The 15% of myself still remained of the little girl reading Moby Dick in the armchair was there. She was the girl who, even though none were expected that day, looked out to the water for whales. And here is our final quote from Moby Dick. O man, admire and model thyself after the whale. Do thou, too, remain warm among ice. Do thou, too, live in this world without being of it. Be cool at the equator. Keep thy blood fluid at the pole. Like the great dome of St. Peter and like the great whale retain, O man, in all seasons, a temperature of thine own. This is the sound of the musician from Below Decks. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, Please make sure to follow our Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and go ahead and write to us and visit us at literarydisco.com. See you next week with Tinkers.